strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from uh, the Calm Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in the Red Centre in Central Australia. And we're broadcasting to all uh, nations through Vast Channel 911 and on 8 FM here in Alice Springs. We're also coming to you uh, via our website online at karma.com.au. It's, of course, the start of the working week. It's uh, Monday, the 22nd of July, 2000. And uh, 19, my name's Carl Dialing. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host for the program. You'll have my company up until 12 o'clock today. We're coming up on Strong Voices. Uh, last Friday, the 19th of July, did mark the uh, 2019 Northern Territory Aboriginal Leadership Governance Forum was held here in Abantua, Alice Springs. It's the second of the forums to be held. Uh, it saw... Uh, people from uh, right across the country coming together, Aboriginal leaders, uh, people from the corporate world as well as uh, government as well, all coming together for the conference, you know, sharing their ideas and experiences on building on the existing strength of Indigenous organisations. So we're going to be hearing a bit about that forum, hearing from the uh, Northern Territory Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Selina Yubo, hearing from some of the speakers as well, which included the uh, Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner, Mick Dodson, as well as... Uh, uh, Selwyn Button from Oric as well will be sharing his thoughts and some of the things he had to say at the forum. We're also going to be hearing about uh, a recent call from the uh, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services along with other legal health and disability, social justice and human rights organisations who have been calling on the federal government uh, to uh, bring back the funding of the Indigenous Legal Aid Assistance Program, which has actually been left out in the 2019-2020 budget and is actually going to be replaced with a new standalone funding mechanism. Also, we're going to be hearing about uh, two visitors from the corporate world in Sydney who are going to be sharing their thoughts about uh, their time spent at Karma here in uh, Central Australia. We're, of course, as well going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island news from right across the country. All that and more coming up right after this. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this uh, Monday morning. Well, last uh, Friday, the 19th of July, here in Ubuntu, Alice Springs, the uh, second 2019 Northern Territory Aboriginal Leadership 
Governance Forum was held. The forum saw leaders from communities, land councils, the corporate world and government come together to share their experiences and ideas on how to build on the existing strengths of Indigenous organisations, as well as understanding local challenges and opportunities in order to build success. Speaking at a press conference at the forum, the Northern Territory Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Selena Yubo, expressed the importance of Aboriginal leadership and governance. It's really important that we have Aboriginal voices heard, particularly when we're talking about decisions made for Aboriginal people. And one of our key priorities with the Northern Territory Labor Government is looking at local decision making. So community by community, Aboriginal people taking control, being empowered and making those decisions that affect them directly. Uh, it's something that Aboriginal people expect. It's something that's been talked about for many, many years. Now we're actually seeing the actions with this government and the support that we have for our Aboriginal leaders and developing our future Aboriginal leaders so decisions can be made locally and decisions are made by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people. Miss Yubo identified some of the challenges Aboriginal leaders are facing here in the Northern Territory. I think one of the challenges is probably a good one. We have a lot of leaders in our communities who are um, already doing many, many different roles as we hear the many different hats that our leaders have. One of the big challenges, I think, is burnout. Um, having our leaders who are looking after everyone else and not necessarily themselves, not necessarily getting the support for themselves to, to grow and develop and to share the load and responsibility. So I see that as a big challenge is burning out some of our quality leaders um, and not necessarily having that succession and that planning for um, our future generations to follow with that knowledge and experience mentoring. And are you finding for the younger generations that there are a lot of mob willing to, to step up and wanting to make those uh, strides to become a leader within their communities? I'm really lucky I get to travel from the north to the south of the Territory and I'm finding that there are a lot of young people but also um, people who are leaders in their community and not necessarily cultural leaders but are working towards supporting the cultural um, and language leaders in our communities are stepping up in that role to be able to be uh, governance leaders, to be chairs and, and CEOs of their organisations and their corporation and that's been very comforting for me uh, in this role as Minister for Aboriginal Affairs to be able to travel the Territory and see that there is a buzz and that people do want to step up into those roles and particularly young Aboriginal people are stepping up to those challenges. I think the forum will be quite inspiring and I think it will be empowering for many people who are here and the people that they talk to when they go back to their own communities. Uh, what I'd like people to take away from the forum is a sense of action, that it's really great to have these forums and these meetings to network together, but what do we do after? What That's really what the key for me is. What are you doing with this information, this knowledge, this networking um, and sharing that experience? What positive impact can you make for your community and what actions will you take to make sure that happens? Johnson this morning was outlining what he said was a dilemma for Aboriginal organisations, that you have to answer to your own community culturally and you have to answer to government bodies and things like that. So he said it was doubly difficult for Aboriginal communities. Do you think that's that's the case? I think... Professor Dodson definitely has a lot of experience in this area and his knowledge and his um, his insight is valuable to um, many Aboriginal Territorians as well as um, people uh, from all different states and territories and I think that dual responsibility and that obligation that we have as Aboriginal people is absolutely correct. We have a sense we don't clock off when we go home and our jobs, we've got family obligations, we've got our friends that we're caring for, um, we've got jobs that sometimes don't clock off at all. Um, so it's uh, I think that dual responsibility of work and and um, culture
cultural obligations, family obligations is a big burden for Aboriginal people but it's just what we do. We get on with the job and we make sure that we're um, supporting our families and our friends to um, do the best for our community. So I think what he said is um, is absolutely spot on. Well, I think it's more in terms of accountability, you know, how you can be accountable to your community culturally and that can create dilemmas if you're then dealing with the sort of white bureaucracy. I think that Aboriginal people manage that quite well. We've done it for many, many generations and decades and I think that that dual responsibility and accountability, um, you do something in a job and your job might finish and your, your relationship and your family accountability doesn't. So whatever you're doing needs to be accountable, whether it's in that Western sense of a job or if it's in a family cultural obligation sense of a job. The Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner Mick Dodson, who chairs the Northern Territory Governance Awards, examined the features of successful Indigenous organisations. Firstly, how legitimate, representative and accountable are these organisations' governing bodies? How effective are they as administrators? How does that administration function work? How do they resolve their disputes? What is the level of commitment to leadership development? of these organisations. The extent to which these organisations reflect the cultural norms and values of their members and the people they claim to serve or represent. And finally, um, what's their capacity like in strategic planning, particularly forward planning? Good governance is dependent on many things, but I once flippantly said there are only three components to good governance. One is leadership. Two is leadership. Three is leadership. Now, putting that silliness aside, the key points of good governance relate to how organisations are structured, how they make decisions, how they manage and operate their organisations to achieve their goals, and in particular, in the Indigenous context, how they balance the relationship between the corporate governance requirements of Western law, under which they're incorporated, and the cultural context in which they're operating. A vital key also is how they build their own capacity through training, mentoring and organisational arrangements that are there to help sustain their achievements. So what is governance and what do we already know about what makes for success in Indigenous organisations? Well, the entomology of the term governance can be traced back to the classical Latin and ancient Greek words for the helmsman and the steering of boats. And over time, this meaning has been applied to societies and political systems where it's been defined as the art of steering societies and organisations. But it's more than an art. It's about having in place the processes, structures and institutional arrangements to make decisions, distribute and exercise authority and power, determine strategic goals, organise corporate and group behaviour, develop rules and assign responsibilities. The Office of the Registrar of Indigenous Corporations, which is responsible for overseeing the financial and corporate governance of Aboriginal corporations, says the total income of the top 500 Aboriginal corporations from 2015 to 2016 was almost $2 billion. New boss, Gungari man from southwest Queensland, Selwyn Button, was another speaker at the forum and he discussed cultural values, Oryx's role in understanding challenges and building success. 
But what we've got to make sure, and this is something that um, certainly Mick and I acknowledge, I acknowledge um, Professor Dodson, who's the Treaty Commissioner up here, and certainly on the back, I caught um, the last part of, of Mick's presentation where he talked about some of the cultural values. And it's something that I talk to the ORIC staff and certainly in my conversations around the place with corporations as well. What are the cultural reference points that you're including in your decision-making practices? Because as Barbara talked about, as Mick talked about, cultural reference points have been, involved, have been in, integral to our decision-making practices for 60,000 years. Just because you step into a boardroom doesn't mean you can't use those cultural reference points. It's how do they influence you to then make sure that you're using that to inform what is a decision about essential services for your mob. These are some of the cultural reference points that are familiar for me in Queensland. They may be different for you fellas. The bunya tree is fairly significant for our mob in Sherberg because a lot of our practices, a lot of our culture and law revolved around the bunya tree because the bunya mountains are in our backyard. So it's, it's those decisions that are made that are actually about day-to-day -day business that included those cultural reference points. Now it's working out how do we translate those things into the boardroom because these things have worked effectively for us for 60,000 odd years. So they can't be that bad to then work out how does that marry up with our role and our responsibilities as directors of corporations as well. Why do corporations fail? Really simply, it's poor judgment. It's lack of transparency. And that's the stuff we've been talking about here already. It's poor decision making. And the last one is about believing your own rhetoric. How many boards just believe their own crap that they come up with to think, yes, we're, we're in charge, we know what's best. When, when corporations get to that point, that's when we see them starting to fail. What can corporations do better? Keep members informed about decisions. We talk about transparency. I talk a lot about transparency of information. And it's about transparency, not just in relation to giving people information of what's going on on the inside. It's about transparency to inform the decisions that are made by directors as well. What does it look like for ORIC? These are the sorts of things that we're starting to do. And this is about transparency for us too, because this is a new practice for us. I've got my guys sitting over here, um, hopefully they're not wincing in their seats thinking, oh, shit, he's letting out our secrets now. Um, but this is about how to, what's going on inside ORIC as an organisation around the process that we undertake to inform the decisions that we make. That we're actually introducing data cards and using data as a reference point to inform our decision. And lastly, what I want to leave you with is this whole notion, and I talk to my staff about this a lot, um, what I believe is about policy legacy. And when we think about it, and it's not just about me as a registrar, it's not just about Garrett as deputy and, and certainly with, with Hannah and the team here in the, in the Northern Hub, it's, it's actually what are we trying, attempting to do as leaders and what are we attempting to do with corporations, what are we attempting to do in terms of good governance practices and decision-making for our mob well into the future. We've actually got to leave a policy legacy for our mob. That was uh, Selwyn Button there speaking at the uh, 2019 Northern Territory Aboriginal Leadership Governance Forum, which was held here in uh, Alice Springs last Friday. We're going to be hearing very soon from uh, Cheryl Axelby discussing uh, a bit of concern around funding for Indigenous uh, legal organisations across Australia. Before then, though, we are going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Pam from Karma and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. This is where I'm 
You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this morning. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our next story now. The National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, along with other along with over 100 other legal health, disability, social justice and human rights organisations, have called on the federal government with an open letter to keep funding the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program, which has been left out of the 2019-2020 federal budget by passing it with a standalone funding mechanism. Nat Sills decided to draft the open letter after an independent review of ILAP found it had uh, it was a cost-effective, efficient, culturally safe and preferred legal service provider of First Nations peoples. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with Cheryl Axelby, co-chair of NatSills, about what this will mean for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services. What's actually been put on the table is the Commonwealth Government have decided to disband what they call the Indigenous Legal Assistance Programme, which provides the national funding, it's the only national programme, that provides funding for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services. The programme itself was set up as a program to provide legal assistance for our most disadvantaged Australians. And we've been receiving that funding for over 50 years. And how that's been set up is that's been what we call set-aside standalone funding by the Commonwealth Government that goes directly to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services in each states and territory, directly from the Commonwealth. What they're looking at doing is to now disband, which means that they're no longer going to commit to having a standalone pocket of money for the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program and that they want us to play this under the states and territories under a state and, uh, and commonwealth agreement. That means that our funding could then be distributed to us by states and territory governments in the future. What kind of impact will that uh, new mechanism have on the legal services? Well, they're still working out the, I suppose, the uh, parameters around what that's going to look like. All of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services have said back to the Commonwealth that we are really concerned that they're disbanding the program because, you know, they had a review of the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program and its number one recommendation was for the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program to be retained. So we're at a, at a loss as to why the government, with their own review, are deciding to disband the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program, despite its own review saying that it should be maintained. It provided a lot of positive recommendations and also it demonstrated how deadly and how culturally safe our legal assistance programs are through our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services. So the impact would be that... In the future, states and territory governments, if Commonwealth, say, for instance, pull out their funding commitment, and if we're left up to states and territories to decide whether to fund us or not, that's the dilemma that we're worried about. It could either be mainstreaming us or we may not get ongoing funding in the future. Now, Cheryl, was there any kind of, like, warning or any kind of message saying that this is why we're going to do it, or was it just out of the blue? Well, we were not informed of the decision of the government until they released it in the May budget. So it did come as a bit of a surprise to us that the government were going to disband the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program. When the review happened, the government had put their own submission into their own review and made three recommendations. So we sort of knew that they were looking at, you know, one whether the, the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program, where our funding would still be delivered through that program. But there was no, I suppose, uh, we weren't even spoken to before the decision was made by the government, which came, you know, it came as a bit of a shock. And is there no chance of following those recommendations? Well, it's up to the government to 
you know, it's, it's their own report and, you know, so it's up to the government to really determine whether or not they will implement the recommendations. So at this stage, what we do know is that they're having conversations with states and territory governments to see whether they would be willing to have our funding in the next um, what they call the national uh, single national mechanism or the national partnership agreement, whatever you want to call it, arrangements that between the states and, and Commonwealth coming up in the future. So we don't know for sure whether our funding, there's a commitment that they will quarantine our funding, but we don't know because nothing's yet been finalised um, and we've not had feedback from each of the states and territories yet as to what their position on this will be. Over 100 legal health, disability and social justice and human rights organisations have backed and called on the government in an open letter. Have you received any kind of response from that? No, we haven't. We haven't received any response from the government in respect to that. You know, and, you know, it's great to see that we have deadly support out there. Even in the legal assistance uh, sector out there, so with the legal aid commissions, the community legal centres, you know, they value our Aboriginal um, Torres Strait legal services because they know that we're best placed to provide services to our communities. You know, we provide much-needed legal services, but we challenge discrimination, but we develop public policy in that context. We give feedback in regards to legislation and its impact on our people in each of the states and territories. And also, we provide holistic programs to ensure contact with the justice system doesn't just happen in the first place. And a lot of the mainstream legal aid um, services don't do that to the level that we do. So... You know, it's one, it's great that we've got that recognition and respect across the legal assistance sector. And, you know, what we need really is for the government to really review its decision because the impact on our mob could mean that we'd actually have more of our mob being impacted by having high incarceration rates. You know, if our services are reduced in the future, it means that our mob won't have culturally safe legal services to access. And the biggest impact will be in our real, you know, regional remote areas because sometimes, well, most of the time, we are the only service providers out there, um, you know, doing the bush court. So this actually could have a bigger impact than I think the government realises. And then in the long run, it could cost states and territories a great deal of money as well. Do you think that this reflects the government's position on community-controlled legal services? I think it's sort of contradictory because we have the current government talking about supporting and wanting to, you know, empower Aboriginal communities. You know, we've got the government talking about having constitutional recognition and also we've been involved in closing the gap at the national level where we've been able to get justice targets onto the table. But whilst one hand's giving, the other hand's taking and that's what we're seeing is... If we're talking about empowering communities and supporting our um, Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, then, you know, why would our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander legal services, which are crucial services to our communities and to our mob, you know, we've raised issues like stolen gen. We actually support families with Aboriginal deaths in custody. These are cases that, where we have to challenge the state. So this is what our concern is going forward, is we're going to be clashing with the states and territories on some of these issues because that's what we do. And what does that mean in the future if states and territories don't like the work that we are doing? How much is this going to impact? Because you're providing culturally appropriate services to yep. people that are, and Aboriginal Trust or other people are overrepresented in the prison system and court systems. How big of an impact is this going to make it even worse? Well, that's what we're really worried about. I don't think the Commonwealth Government really understands about why we need to have Commonwealth leadership and funding 
for our Aboriginal legal services, and particularly so because of the many issues that impact our mob at the state and territory level. Like we see legislation changes that impact on our mob becoming more incarcerated. You know, we're seeing women in prison, incarceration rates grow over the last 10 years, and we see now young. Young fellas, incarceration rates grow. We've seen an increase in Aboriginal deaths in custody. South Australia, in the last, since 2015, we've had eight in South Australia. Like, I think feeling that it's states and territories' responsibilities because you know, it's justice issues, what we're saying is, well, we still need Commonwealth leadership because you have a responsibility to ensure that our mob are getting access to services and to ensure that our services are filtered through our Aboriginal community-controlled organisations. If you know any of our community mob are concerned in regards to what's actually happening, that we have been running a campaign called Hashtag Justice By Us where we've been asking that the federal government retain the Indigenous Legal Assistance Program. So I'd encourage our mob to go and look at the NATSAL's website and look at how their voices can assist us, maybe by contacting your local state government premiers and also attorneys, but also, you know, we have um, our very first Indigenous Affairs Minister for Indigenous people. Let them know how important our services are to us and why we need, still need our standalone funding for our programs. On that note, uh, Cheryl Axelby, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. That was Cheryl Axelby there, co-chair of uh, NatSIL's the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country right after this. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this Monday morning. Great to have your company today. I'm very happy to have uh, fellow Calm journalist Damien Williams' company as well in the studio. Good morning, Damien. Morning, Kyle, and morning to all our listeners out there. Well, Damien, a lot's happening around the country. Let's start uh, with a story I believe you have about an artist uh, winning an award recently. Yeah, um, and in, uh, this one is from the ABC, uh, an Indigenous man who first held a paintbrush um, some years ago has taken out the Australia's richest landscape prize um, worth $100,000. Um, Carbini McDonald, um, Jungler's work f- uh, for Dreamings was selected as the winner of the Hadley's Art Prize um, from more than 600 other paintings as well. It took uh, McDonald Jungler um, two days to travel from the remote community of Popanya uh, in the Northern Territory to, ta- to Tassie where he, uh, he he took his first ever flight <laughs> during the journey as well. So that was a bit, that was awesome. Um, his sister Karen, who translated for um, Jangala, said uh, he had been overwhelmed by his um, overnight success. And he's really, he's really happy and grateful because this is our first time coming here, um, his sister said on his behalf as well. So, um uh, McDonald Jungler, who uh, comes from a family of well-known artists, first held a paintbrush at twelve months, uh, twelve months ago, when he uh, went at a local centre that was uh, initially designed for women, opened for men as well. So, um, yeah, very excited to see um, some more of the Papua artists getting up there and uh, winning in a, a, the Headley's Art Prize, which is um, pretty crazy. Yeah, amazing recognition of, you know, the talent of, of a lot of the mob 
different you know, it's great to see the mob getting recognized and things like this and having the, like you're mentioning those support programs are available uh, amazing is all to hear you don't even paint for a very <laughs> short yes, amount of time exactly it's it's crazy well on to our next story uh Good morning to Paul as well, who's now in the studio with us as well. Yeah, good morning, uh, Kyle, and good morning, uh, Damo. Well, uh, I uh, just found a report. Uh, I did see it uh, was just came up on uh, Sky News as well. A uh, group of French journalists have been arrested in Queensland for filming content for a documentary uh, for France 2, which is one of uh, France's most popular television stations. Uh, Hugo Clement, a famous French journalist and television personality, alongside three other cameramen were filming content of protesters outside uh, the Abbott Point Coal Terminal in Bowen, Queensland. The protesters were blocking the entrance to a coal terminal owned by Adani, um, the Indian-owned uh, mining company which wants to build one of the biggest open-cut coal mines in Australia. Uh, Clement and the others were told by Queensland police they were obstructing the railway as they were capturing footage of protesters stopping workers from entering the coal terminal. Without warning, all four Frenchmen were immediately placed in handcuffs and put into police vehicles. The uh, protest comes just days after information was announced that Adani would begin clearing trees in preparation for building uh, its controversial coal mine. So uh, Adani uh, Adani now going global to France uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, but um, interesting that they um, have uh, obviously um, the, uh, the Queensland government alongside uh, its um, work uh, to uh, progress the mine at different levels. I mean, there's so many levels um, going on, um, you know, charges of, uh, you know, they they uh, misrepresented some of the information put to the Queensland government. But as far as we know, the project's still going ahead. Uh, very, very confusing. Um, obviously, for a lot of uh, people living in uh, the proposed Adani coal mine site, um, you know, we obviously uh, uh, feel uh, for them as far as, uh, you know, the job projections. But I think in reality, uh, again, um, the jobs, um, most of the jobs, once the mine is constructed, um, will be very limited. Um, obviously, there will be some financial kickback for a lot of those towns. But the um, the big picture discussion uh, as far as global warming and is coal uh, still considered uh, um, going into the future uh, a necessary source of fuel. Obviously there are a large number of people who say yes it is. Uh, there are a large number of people who have different views to that but um, as we're here to re- represent the local Aboriginal people in that community, they are against it and um, we'll continue to share their voice and their concern. And back to you, Dame. I understand you have a story this morning just quickly about a record number of students learning Aboriginal languages in Victoria. Yes, uh, in Victoria, students are studying Aboriginal languages with enrolments expected to increase as a new, genera- new generation of child, um, children revive Indigenous cultures in kindergarten as well. So, so edu- the ed- educa- 
Education Department figures show that uh, 1,867 uh, state school students were enrolled in Aboriginal languages last year, up from 30, up from 23 students in 2011. Uh, this represents an 8,000% increase in the number of students um, wanting to um, learn an Aboriginal language. And the Victorian um, Aboriginal Education Association General Manager Lionel um, Ballet said that the ph- phenomenal growth in enrolments had been so. Um, spurred by the growing interest in Aboriginal Australia uh, and uh, he also said that uh, if we're wanting to move forward we have to have a clear understanding of each other as well. He said learning in Aboriginal languages helped students um, develop a strong cultural identity, promoted reconciliation and gave children an understanding of Australian history so um, that's really awesome to hear uh, that students um are wanting to enrol in learning Aboriginal languages and, and cultures as well. It's a great way of, um, as as uh, Mr. Um, Bamlet was saying, that um, it's a great way of learning about each other's cultures as well and, you know, starting that reconciliation process and, and um, just getting an understanding of each other, which is awesome. Mm, definitely. And just briefly, Paul, I understand you have one a little bit just uh, about just, the rally just in Melbourne. Just to mention the uh, rally on Friday in uh, Melbourne, uh, young people, uh, um, led a rally of hundreds uh, to stop uh, fracking in the Northern Territory. Um, the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network uh, met in Melbourne um, to push their plans um, or to push their voice uh, uh, about fracking gas in the Northern Territory. Aboriginal young people, traditional owners and communities um, most at threat uh, by um, plans for fracking are leading a growing movement across the country um, and that is um, it is a growing movement um, but we will continue to uh, share the thoughts again of the local TOs and the uh, mob on the ground um, uh, about their views uh, for fracking in the Northern Territory Mm. Well on that note uh, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you Thank you. We're going to head to a quick song now and then we'll be right back with our last story here on Strong Voices G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Lynette Shee and Marcus Jilicic are two young Australians from different cultural backgrounds who work in the corporate sector in Sydney. They recently spent time at Karma in Central Australia with uh, Jowan, a non-profit organisation which manages uh, segments from the corporate and public sectors to a range of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander partner organisations in urban, regional and remote communities across Australia. They spoke with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles about their time here at uh, Karma, what they learnt about Aboriginal people and what they were taking away from their time here in Central Australia. We came to Alice through a program called Jarwin. Jarwin is a program that basically partners with Indigenous organisations and corporate organisations of Australia, sort of your top 200 sort of size corporations, and basically they take employees from those uh, corporate organisations and second them into uh, the Indigenous organisations. So we applied separately to, to that and uh, basically just assumed that we could help out in some way or another, and, and we've been helping Karma out with that. Lynette, your understanding of the First Nations peoples of this country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, your time in Sydney, what did you know about Aboriginal people? Nothing. I knew nothing before I came here. 
I rarely ever work with Indigenous people at work and I rarely had any friends that was Aboriginal as well. When you came to Australia, what did you know about the history of the country? I didn't know much. I wanted to learn more about cultures and about where everything come from. Aboriginal people have an amazing connection to this land. You have amazing dream stories I had no idea about until I came here, which Mm. was really good to learn. When we're talking about the connection of the First Nations peoples, I think it's fairly globally accepted and understood that there was a race of people in Australia before Captain Cook arrived. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. What did you want to learn about and why? I wanted to learn about Aboriginal history I wanted to learn about the original culture and Aboriginal stories. I wasn't schooled here except for, you know, year 12, and that was very limited subjects that I could learn at the time. So I wanted to learn about the history. I, I did go to museums and et cetera, but those paintings, you know, they're beautiful, but I don't know the story. I never knew the stories behind them. And now I look at the painting, I was like, oh, that is a Seven Sisters story. Or here, that's a waterhole story. Oh, that is, you know, the rainbow serpent. And they're wonderful. They're beautiful stories that I never knew before. So that's what I actually wanted to learn. Marcus, what connection, if any, did you have with Aboriginal people? The connection, if any, was pretty much none or nil. The most connection we had was a welcome to country or those sort of things that are being phased in at a corporate level. But I was thinking about it while Lynn was talking and the main thing that my perception before arriving at Alice was that Aboriginal culture was one that was remembered and one that was in the past and one that was like in the dreaming, right? Which is the actual term. You know, everyone calls it the dreaming and that's what they call it, whereas actually it's not. It's something that is lived every day and something that is still involved in the fabric of Aboriginal society. So that was a big learning for me. The idea that that's something that's very much a preconceived prejudice that I had was that it's it's a forgotten and a, and a like, like Latin, it's a dead culture where it's actually really not. Do you think as a nation we've failed in really telling the true story of this country? Yeah, without a doubt. The education that I received, obviously it was a lot better than the education that say my dad received on the topic, which was none. Or at least I received some sort of information about it, but it doesn't represent the extent of the displacement that occurred. Lynette, when you arrived, you had very little understanding, so mm. already you've started to look at the paintings and get a, an understanding, but to be living as we do here in Alice Springs daily with a living culture. When you go back to Sydney, what are you going to tell people? There is so much to tell them. I would tell them a lot about Karma, actually. This is a great organisation that's doing amazing work with very limited resources. The radio broadcasting, I think you do really quality radio work and then you also promote indigenous artists in music production and recording and you're making fantastic documentaries and films in the TV sector as well. But you've only got such limited number of people working here. I would be going back to Sydney and telling everybody about Karma. I mean, how come I didn't know about you guys at all before? I mean, you have the second largest radio broadcasting coverage in the country. Everybody should know about you. And that's what I'm going to tell them when I go back. I think over and above the Karma angle, which I think Lynn covered really well, the idea that Indigenous people have some good ideas about what they need to do and some of it can actually translate back to other people as well. I think that's something that 
is sometimes lost in discussion where it's just like, no, we, we need to do something about that rather than do something with them because it's not a problem, it's a people, right? So I think that's a, a definitely a change in my attitude as well as the way that I'll describe Alice. Going back to corporate Sydney, having spent a couple of weeks here in Alice, um, what have you taken out of actually being out of that environment and what can you take back with a, a different mindset? Personally, I think that the idea you can do a lot more with a lot less is what what I'll take back because I think that you get a lot of money flowing about in in corporate Australia and you get a lot of not much going on because everyone's going to meetings and ticking boxes and making sure that they've got their working group that then feeds into their steering committee and then feeds into their whatever, which ends up not doing much at all. So that's something that I'll definitely take back is the fact that you can do a lot more with a lot less. You just need to be willing to make the decision and, and back yourself and make the decision. So that's something definitely I'll take back to corporate Australia. Lynette, what sure. will you take back? I would take back all the friends that I made here. They've been amazing. I would always remember the original people I've met here have great sense of humour, which did come to me as a surprise at first. But I think they use that as a, as a tool to be so re- resilient in all of the problems and the issues that they face. I will also go back and probably have a better perspective on life in general, because you guys work really hard. You do really great work, but you don't have to kill yourself for it in, like a, in a big competitive corporate environment. So I'm probably going back with a lot more calmer mind. On that note, uh, Lynette and Marcus, um, thanks uh, for sharing your journey here at Karma and uh, your time in Central Australia. Thank you very Thank much. You. That was uh, Karma's Paul Wiles speaking with Lynette, she and Marcus Jelicic from Westpac in Sydney. That's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for this Monday morning. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoy the program and want to listen back to it or may have missed any of the stories, I'll be posting up a podcast of the Strong Voices uh, show today up on Karma SoundCloud, so you can look for that one. Uh, Also, make sure you check out our Karma webpage as well. We'll be posting up the individual stories from uh, what was on today as well. And uh, make sure you check out our social media, our Facebook and Twitter as well. And we'll see you the same time tomorrow. Strong Voices.